I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Vet Sessions. Today, I have Dr. Brian Stevens here with us. He's a graduate of the Ontario Veterinary College and a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. He currently is the wildlife pathologist for the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative for Ontario and the Nunavut region. Uh, welcome, Dr. Stevens. Thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. You're here today to chat about avian influenza, influenza viruses in particular, and some of the, you know, the hype and the, the stories in the news. Um, it's interesting because I know very little about avian influenza, okay. um, very little about chickens in particular, or birds for that matter. Uh, so I'm looking forward to our discussion today, um, and hopefully, you know, you'll you'll bring some of that information to light and some of the stuff that we don't know behind the scenes that is happening uh, and make us all aware of avian influenza and uh, why it's getting this much, you know, news play right now. Yeah. So before we get into that, though, tell us a bit about your life journey. What made you become a veterinarian and what made you jump into this sort of really specialized, you know, area? Yeah, so I, I don't think my story at the beginning is much different from anyone else. I had a strong interest in animals in general. Um, medicine wasn't my initial thing early on. I actually started in marine biology, oh, nice. um, but made a switch over to veterinary medicine after working in a small animal practice. Um, and then when I got into the Ontario Vet College, between my second and third year, I worked in the pathobiology department and worked in the postmortem room. And that's where I really discovered anatomic pathology and the necropsy side of things, histology, mm -hmm. everything like that. And that's kind of where my passion started to grow. Yeah. Um, and then I quickly, after graduating, I actually uh, practiced for three years in small animal practice, but then quickly after that came back to do a residency in anatomic pathology mm -hmm. and eventually made my way to New Hampshire, um, where I got a job at a state lab there. Um, and that was just diagnostic work with uh, small animals for the most part. Yeah. But that's where I got into wildlife. Oh, interesting. So marine biology, yeah, and that was something that I had thought of doing when I was younger, let's say, before I got yeah. into that school as well. So you went the opposite. I was leaning more towards that and then, you know, ended up in that. Um, and, yeah, you got into to pathology in your second, third years. That's interesting because it wasn't very, you know, one of my strong suits at all. Um, yeah. And, it, yeah, it is a definitely a, a very specialized area. Uh, New Hampshire in the U.S.? So yep. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, nice. so I moved down there soon after graduating from the residency program. Yeah. Um, and as I said, we worked with the Fish and Game uh, people down there on mm -hmm. different projects. So a colleague of mine, we're working on a project with the uh, main fishing game on uh, Canada lynx down there and just yeah. trying to determine cause of death of a number of different Canada lynx. And we did a project mm -hmm. on that. And then when I was there, we also had a die off of northern gannets, which we investigated as well. Oh, what? Northern gannets, it's a, a seabird. Oh, okay. um, so they're often seen out on the East Coast. Mm. Um, and they're the ones that you often see diving into the, the water to fish. Right. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Wow. I mean, that, that is quite the journey, definitely. And yeah, as you said, most of us thought of with a passion for animals. You know, some of us, you know, have thought about that, uh, human medicine and, you know, decided to go in the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that story sounds quite familiar, as you said. Yes. So tell us a bit about 
avian influenza and I guess influenza viruses in particular in, in general? Yeah, so I mean, I think we're all familiar with influenza viruses because they infect many different species, including humans. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the, the main things that people should know about it is there are many different strains of influenza viruses out there, some of which will infect certain species more than others. Um, and there's two letters that are often thrown out here, the H and the N, mm -hmm. um, and that's a hemagglutinin and a neuraminidase. Um, and they're a protein and an enzyme. Um, I don't know all the details about what they do, but the main thing yeah. is that one of the uh, reasons that we talk about it is because that's one way for us to distinguish between different types of influenza A viruses. Mm -hmm. um, so if we think about the swine influenza virus from a few years ago, that was an yeah. H1N1. Um, the current avian influenza is H5N1. Um, a number of human ones tend to be like H3N2 and a few others like that. Um, so there are a number out there that most of the time don't cause major issues, but there's a few like the one that's out there circulating now that can cause major issues for wildlife, right. domestic animals, as well as humans at times. Yeah, that's interesting. So the, the, the hemagglutin, and I guess is the safest protein, and the neuromin is the enzyme itself. Yeah. What, I guess, what makes them jump like, like cross species, or is it just the... So, so they will jump from species to species all the time. Mm -hmm. um, the, the main thing is whether or not the protein, so the hemagglutinin is the one that often allows it to attach to um, cells within the body. So whether or not there is the possibility for it to attach in a mammal cell versus a bird cell, because there are going to mm -hmm. be differences in our cellular makeup yeah. um, in that respect. So there are certain mutations that can occur that allow these uh, viruses to jump from species to species. Um, and one of the species that often comes into play when it, when we talk about influenza A viruses is pigs. Yes. Um, and they tend to be known as like this big mixing pot of influenza viruses where for some reason they're able to um, be infected with a number of different influenza viruses, whether it's human, bird, or their own swine influenza viruses. Yeah. And then they will reassort in there and potentially create different strains of the influenza virus as well. Right. So that was that big swine flu scare that was a few years ago, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And was that, do you know, was that a particular swine virus that mutated or was it an avian, or avian influenza mix? Or? From what I recall, it was mostly a swine influenza yeah. virus. Um, I don't know all the details whether or not it was a mixture of maybe a human virus as well. And that may have been why it got into people too. Yeah. Um, or whether there was just a weird mutation in that one. Um, I, mm. I don't know all the details right. with that one. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Um, so in, in terms of the transmission, um, how does that work? You said it, it, it can jump species, cross species, and whether yep. they attach um, and then whether that attachment leads to disease or not. But how, how does that happen? What's the mode of transmission then? So there's a few different ways that it could transmit. The major way is going to be... Um, either through the air somehow. So typically we see it in the fall and winter because the virus is able to survive a little bit easier. So if we think about mm. similar to COVID, um, if it is going to be aerosolized or in some of these respiratory droplets, more likely that with right. the influenza viruses, then you're likely to breathe it in or pick it up somewhere um, and get infected that route. 
Um, so we do see that quite frequently in the fall and winter because that is a time for the virus to transmit much easier because the weather is cooler. People tend to be indoors. Yeah. Um, same thing can happen with birds. They will congregate during the winter months as well. Makes sense. Um, and uh, with the cooler weather, the virus is able to transmit better. Um, so when birds have it, they're often shedding the virus uh, through two routes, through their respiratory tract. So then they're often either sneezing or coughing it up. Or they could have it transmit through their intestinal tract. So it could be in their feces as well. Um, so we will see that uh, very regularly in birds where they're passing it basically direct transmission from bird to bird, yeah. um, typically when they're in close communities. Mm, okay. But then how would you get that from species, one type of bird to another? So same. that could be the same thing, yeah, um, where they're just going to be in the same general area. Yeah. Um, a lot of these birds, if they're migrating in the fall and winter, and that's when we saw this outbreak start, was during the spring migration. Mm. Um, when we talk about wild bird migrations, we're not talking about Canada geese on their own flying. We're talking about multiple species often moving in big clusters. Mm. Um, so you will see cross-species transmission between right. wild birds very readily during that migration time. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And I never, you know, again, yep. being a, a naive bird person, a bird naive person. Yes. Yeah, you think, right, you see the geese flying together. Yep. But yeah, that makes complete sense that, you know, different birds would flock together and fly together as well. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and it's not something that, because my background wasn't wildlife before I really got into this yeah. job, it wasn't something that I was really familiar with either yeah. until I really started to dive into it and see exactly how all of these wild bird species were kind of moving together and congregating at different times right yeah i mean that, that's fascinating and certainly eye-opening again you know you look yeah. at the, the the shows on tv national geographic and the like and you see it but it doesn't really click and, until now that you mention it and then yeah that light bulb goes on. oh yeah that yeah. makes more sense than actually just looking at it on tv yes. yeah interesting um so then if, if i understand correctly the, the same influence or avian influence virus can yeah. go from let's just say a, a blackbird to a, yes. a, a Canada goose to yep. a loon, same virus, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in general, we've had avian influenza viruses all the time. Mm -hmm. They're constantly uh, being transmitted, similar to people with human influenza viruses that transmit constantly and we get our yearly outbreaks. Uh, avian influenza virus is always out there circulating the populations, mutating mm -hmm. all the time, just as yeah. it does in humans. Um, for the most part, those viruses are not a danger to the birds, whether it's a chicken or a wild bird. They're mm -hmm. often just very mild illness or no illness in a lot of those yeah. cases. So we will pick it up even before we had this outbreak. Mm -hmm. We were picking up avian influenza viruses in wild birds. And it's thought that uh, different duck species are the ones that are carrying it naturally. Okay. Um, I don't know if anyone's figured out exactly which species are the main <laughs> reservoir. Right. Um, I know there's a lot of work trying to figure that out, but yeah. for the most part, it seems like there is ducks or geese that are just carrying this normally, and most of the time, it's not a concern for any yeah. of these birds. And then you get that one particular mutation, like the yep. H5N3, you said? H5N1. H5N1, yeah, sorry. that's the one circulating right, right. now. Right, and that one's just the more pathologic or pathogenic yeah, so with, with avian influenza viruses, we often uh, put them into two categories, um, a highly pathogenic strain and a low pathogenic strain. And mm -hmm. that has more to do with the disease in poultry, right. so chickens and turkeys. Yeah. Um, so for the vast majority of influenza viruses that are circulating in birds are this low pathogenic strain. Mm. So those ones 
are not going to cause major disease in chickens or turkeys. They may get a mild respiratory illness, similar to if you caught the flu and just felt off for a few days. Right. You get over it. That's what would usually happen in chickens or turkeys, or they wouldn't show any symptoms. Um, But then you occasionally will get these highly pathogenic strains, which then can cause major disruptions to uh, chickens and turkeys because they can cause mass mortality in those species. Yeah, and I guess being a you know a food industry bird, then that that's where I guess the crux of the matter comes into play, right? Yeah, not- yeah, it definitely affects economics, trade, yeah. everything at that point. Right. Oh, that's interesting. So hence the the, the major biosecurities that those facilities have. Then yes, yeah, yeah, and that's one of the. Uh, viruses or pathogens that are out there that they really want to control because it can cause huge disruptions to their flocks Mm, okay um i know that in guelph and a couple of the small areas the backyard poultry is becoming you know sort of a thing right now how do you see that factoring into to circulating avian influenza viruses so I don't think it's going to change the circulation of the avian influenza virus. Um, the one thing it's going to change is that we're going to see potentially more uh, poultry that are affected with this. So if we think about the large industry of chickens and turkeys, those are massive barns with large amounts of biosecurity, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. Yeah. Whereas a backyard flock, typically you're going to have a, a small coop. Yep. That may be the only place that they are. They're going to be outside. They're going to come in contact with wild birds potentially Mm -hmm. out there. Um, So it does potentially allow for more transmission to these backyard flocks, depending on what species of bird are coming through. Right. Um, And I mentioned which species of bird because we don't see this virus in all species of wild bird at this point. It's mostly seen in our waterfowl or our shorebirds. So we're talking about ducks, geese, Mm. gulls. Um, and we've started to see it in raptors in this one, and I can get into that in a little bit more detail as to how that came about. Yeah. Um, but in general, it tends to be the waterfowl and shorebirds that are carrying this, less okay. commonly seen in songbirds that you're going to see in the backyard of Guelph. Oh, that well, that's good to know, definitely. Yeah. Um, that that's that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, so you mentioned, you know, the the importance in the the uh, uh, chicken and, and turkey industries yeah. coming back to the sort of the, the average you know backyard poultry you know uh, person what signs should they look for are there any tests that can be done if they're suspicious or concerned yeah so signs are a bit tricky in um, backyard poultry because sometimes the major sign for say um, a larger producer is just high mortality in mm. their flock um, which makes sense when you've got 10,000 birds. If you all of a sudden lose 2,000 overnight, yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, red flag. But if we're talking about five birds and you lose one, that may not raise a red flag, but it's the same percentage. It's 20% of the flock yeah. has been lost. So it's a bit trickier to, to diagnose or to pick it up in backyard flocks unless all of them die. Mm-hmm. Um, things that people would be looking for would be things like respiratory signs in these birds. Um, it could be changes in color of the comb and wattle, and they can also get quite swollen from edema as well. Okay. Um, and in some cases, you can get neurological signs. Um, mm. And that's what we're seeing in the wild birds is more the neurological side of things with this one. Right. And how would you describe those? I mean, I, I, I can tell you what a neurological yep. sign in a, a dog or a cat would yes. look like, a rabbit even maybe, but a bird. Yeah, what? so birds, one of the things that we've seen, and it, it may be trickier in a 
chicken who's not going to be flying around as much, but mm. um, it could be difficulty uh, flying. It could be difficulty yeah. walking or even standing. Okay. Um, so some of the birds that uh, we've seen videos of, and I'm mostly getting the wild birds, it's these yeah. birds that are just sitting on the ground, not moving when anybody comes close. And then mm. when somebody does get close, they'll notice that they have irregular head or neck movements. Sometimes they can't have seizures. Right. Um, right. So it could be as simple as just a bird that's stumbling around, having trouble standing, yeah. um, and potentially having seizures or little weird ticks or something like yeah. that with their head or neck. Right. Okay. All right. I was going to say that's your typical chicken anyways. <laughs> They're always head bobbing <laughs> and weaving and... Okay. All right. Yeah. Very, very interesting. And not something that, you know, the average, you know, sort of, you know, small animal companion animal practitioner would yes. think about. Yeah. Um, certainly, yeah, certainly interesting. And not something that I would hopefully not see. Yes. Um, testing. How, you know, what are the tests? You know, obviously we would in a dog or cat do a CBC, biochem, yeah. or some other, you know, specific tests. How do we look for avian influenza? So that's the trouble is there's not really a good way to do it. Um, if there is a concern for avian influenza in a backyard poultry, um, then the veterinarian should be contacting the CFA immediately mm -hmm. uh, because the CFA would then be called out to then test these birds. Mm -hmm. um, and they would typically do that with an oral swab. Um, so they typically do an oral pharyngeal swab and potentially a cloacal swab as well, right. and then do a PCR test on it to diagnose it. Um, there are people who sell rapid tests. These are mostly for larger producers, and I don't believe mm. they're authorized in Canada at all, but I think in okay. the U.S. they are. Um, but again, that's for a larger producer where they're potentially going to be testing multiple birds at the same time. It's just a quick rapid test similar to like a COVID rapid yeah, test. Yeah. Um, but again, those aren't readily available and I don't know how accurate they are. So realistically, right. if there is a concern for this, um, then the CFA should be contacted and then they would take steps if they want to be testing those birds at that point. Right. Okay. So is it, is it then a reportable disease or not? It is a reportable, reportable disease and that the main reason it's a reportable disease is because, um, of the economics and trade yeah. implications that come into play because it can devastate the the poultry industry if it does get into some of mm. these larger barns so right. the cfa definitely wants to know what's going on with that virus and they will yeah. take the necessary steps if they do suspect it on a premises right okay it's good to know i mean that that's really good information definitely and and certainly new knowledge to me and, and hopefully to, to many of our listeners as well um so as you said, avian influenza virus has been around for a long time, yeah. influenza viruses in general. And there's, you know, species mingling and, and mutations and variants that, that happen. And uh, as you alluded to, you know, in the spring of this year, we had that big outbreak. Yes. So is that something that, that was odd to see? Or does it happen every spring and we're just not aware of it? Or is it what, why the, I guess, all the media hype and everything now? So yeah, so I'll I'll take you back to the the year before with this because it actually starts a year in advance before right. it actually started here in North America. Okay. Um, so in general, yes, this is a an odd thing. This is not usual. Our last outbreak of high path avian influenza, I believe, is in 2015, mm -hmm. um, and there were a few turkey barns in Ontario that were affected with that one, but it didn't seem to affect wild birds, anything like that. So we really don't see anything to this scale right. typically. Um, but the reason I'll bring you back a year prior is because this virus didn't 
occur in North America first. This virus actually occurred in Europe and Asia first. Okay. Um, and they've been dealing with this virus for over a year now. Mm-hmm. So it started in the fall of 2020 wow. that they first had this virus show up in wild birds and then in poultry um, in both Europe and Asia. Um, and the other thing that people need to know is that wild birds do not look at our countries and continents and respect those boundaries. Yeah. They are going to go globally. Yes. Um, so the global migration routes are going to bring birds from Europe and Asia into North America on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So we in the wildlife world knew that this was happening there, had been happening for a year, and we were kind of keeping an eye on it, knowing that it could jump to North America at yeah. any point. Um, so it did eventually make its way and was first detected in Newfoundland um, in December of 2021. Okay. Um, so in Newfoundland, just in Canada or Newfoundland yeah. for North America? Newfoundland and North America. Oh, so wow. that was the first detection. Um, and that was our, our colleagues. We have a um, region out in the Atlantic province and PEI. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were the first ones to detect it out there from these gulls that were dying in Newfoundland. Right. Um, and then soon after that, they started to see it pop up along the entire eastern coast. So they started to see it in the U.S. And that's where all of these birds were were, uh, overwintering. Mm. So all of these Canada geese and ducks were in the U.S. overwintering in the warmer climate down there. Um, So we kind of knew this was potentially coming before it did. Um, And we've been kind of monitoring it for a while now. Um, And then once it did show up on North America, we knew that we only had a, a couple months before the birds on the east coast that were testing positive were going to start migrating northward right and into ontario and yeah further. really and i guess really like i said they don't respect but well not they don't respect but they don't know about yes, the reason there is that's just and, a human and, and there's concept, no vaccine so. and you can't you know do any sort of preventative measures yes. really right yeah Jeez. not for wild yeah. birds i mean they're yeah. gonna go where they need to go mm-hmm. they need to migrate north and south yeah um they're gonna move and they're gonna bring these viruses with them yeah Interesting, and that, yeah, difficult and challenging situation to be in, knowing that something's coming, and, yes. and you're sort of almost helpless and hopeless to to prevent anything apart from just warning, you know, the, the, the people that need to be warned. And yeah. the, the good thing for us in Ontario is we at least had that warning. We yeah. at least knew months in advance that this was coming, mm-hmm. so we were able to get some preparations in place. The uh, uh, OMAFRA and the CFAA we're putting out notices to poultry producers right. before this showed up in Ontario to let them know that this was likely yeah. coming in the spring. We don't know exactly when in the spring, mm. but it's going to make its way here at some point and people need to prepare for it and up their biosecurity to protect their flocks. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. A lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes yes. that, you know, the average general practitioner is just completely clueless about. Yes. Um, and, and you mentioned too then, you know, um, Birds of prey, yeah, raptors, uh, becoming affected. How? Um, yeah. So with them, it could be similar direct transmission. It's yeah. possible that they could be picking it up in the feces, or maybe they are coming in close contact with these birds mm. um, and picking it up the same way. More likely with birds of prey, we're talking about um, feeding on these infected birds. Um, okay. So we do see it in occasional birds that we wouldn't necessarily think of in like red-tailed hawks and great horned owls because those are mainly feeding on rodents yeah but they will occasionally go after other species as well 
Right. Um, so it's likely they're coming in contact as they feed on them. But the, the main uh, raptor species that we are seeing it in were the scavenger species, so the bald eagles and the turkey vultures. Oh, okay. And that's because, if you think about it, we have ducks and geese and gulls that are dying from this on the landscape. Mm-hmm. When they die, their body's just left out there unless somebody finds it. But if they yeah. don't, those bald eagles and turkey vultures are then going to find it. Right. They're going to then feed on the meat and organs of these birds, and those organs are going to be full of the virus. Okay. Um, and they're likely picking it up just from ingesting it at that point. Mm. Okay. So that's because you usually it's more of an inhaled transmission, but then there's a, a, an ingestion as well, which I guess makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You can. The main way that influenza viruses are transmitted is through the yeah, oral aerosol. Or yeah. aerosol route, um, but you can see these other forms of transmission. Yeah. Um, and the good news for us is that influenza viruses don't like heat. Um, mm. So the question always comes up, is it a concern for people to eat chickens or hunters yeah. who are hunting ducks? Right. Is there a concern? As long as you cook the meat, there's yeah. no concern for transmission to people, which is good. Okay, that's good. So just, uh, I think, a month or so ago, there was, you know, sort of an obscure little article where a couple, you know, uh, fox kits were affected or yes. infected, I should say. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Do you know about that? And I think you mentioned that there may be some other yeah. mammals that have been affected. Yeah, so yeah. That, the, the first ones that were detected in North America were um, a couple of foxes. Uh, one was from St. Mary's, Ontario. Um, and I'm trying to think. I can't remember off the top of my head where the other the one other was. One, yeah. um, but we've had a number of different red foxes. And that was something where it was a bit of a surprise but not a complete surprise to us because there had been rare reports in europe of red foxes that were infected with this and dying from it okay um but we got these first fox kits um about maybe a month or two ago um and the history was basically they were neurological they were having seizures there was a number in this one area that were just seizuring or dying Mm -hmm. and they were going to these rehabilitation centers and they didn't know what was going on they didn't know was this Unlikely to be rabies, but yeah. possible. Canine distemper virus was a major one on our list because yeah. that circulates in wildlife all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we had avian influenza, we decided we should probably just test for it just to yeah. see, and it ended up being positive. Um, it was confirmed as the H5N1 avian influenza virus. Yeah, and it's right uh, circulating. Yeah, yeah. so it, it makes sense that mm-hmm. this was getting into foxes. And since that time, um, we had a positive in a mink. Um, it's still... Mm in the process of being confirmed by the CFA. Um, But in the uh, Midwest of the U.S. and further west, they've diagnosed it in raccoons, opossums, um, and a number of other different species. And the way that they're likely getting infected is similar to what I talked about with the scavengers. These are likely animals that are hunting or scavenging on these birds that are ill-fit or dying from it and they're ingesting the internal organs that have yeah. this virus and then it's getting into them that way and causing disease so is it is it safe to say for now at least then that that, that those mammals that ingest those affected birds are sort of dead and hosts or can they potentially go on to transmit that do so we know or? we don't know much yeah. about it that's one thing that i think people are going to look into and see the mm. other question is we know right now that this virus doesn't infect mammals very well mm-hmm um, but are there changes that are going to happen that allow it to infect uh, mammals easier going forward? So yeah. that's another question that we have to answer. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the quick answer is 
we're not sure exactly what's going on with it. Right now, it appears that they are dead-end hosts. It doesn't appear that they are transmitted to other animals, to people or anything like that. Um, They do appear to be shedding the virus because we are picking it up when we do our oral swabs on these. We will get positive. So they are shedding the virus in their respiratory tract, Mm -hmm. Um, but not to the same degree the birds are. Um, So we don't know if that's going to change going forward and whether or not because we're getting infections in mammals, will there be mutations? Because from what we've seen, some of these mammals are surviving it as well. There's uh, a red fox um, from the same litter uh, from one of these first ones that was Mm -hmm. in the rehabilitation center that seems to have survived for a longer period of time. Um, So we don't know when that, if that continues to happen out there, will there be mutations that allow it to then transmit easier between mammals? Um, And that's work that the CFA and others would be doing on this virus to try and isolate it, look at the mutations and see if there are changes that could suggest that it is uh, changing and mutating a little bit to infect mammals easier. Right. Or even combining with with our influenza viruses. For sure. Yeah. Interesting. And scary. Yes. Oh, jeez. The good news right now is there's no evidence of that. Yeah. So we're yeah. still safe. Right. All right. Well, good to know. Pretty soon that might be an influenza, new influenza vaccine yes. for us again. Yeah. My goodness. Um, I mean, this is all so interesting. Definitely. Uh, just to, to get back, I guess, to, to your major field of interest, you know, the, the, the pathology necropsy aspect of things. When you do, you know, necropsies on these birds, what do you see? Um, or have you done a necropsy on a mammal even with, with influenza or avian influenza, I should say? Yeah. So, yeah, we, we have been doing it on a number of different species and we typically will try and do it for each species that's affected. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I say that, I mean, we've seen it in Canada geese, we've seen it in bald eagles, we've seen it in turkey vultures, and I can keep going on and on about the number of bird species we've seen mm-hmm. it in. So each new species that's detected and we try and do a necropsy on it and same with mammals. Mm-hmm. Um, the main thing is that we don't see a lot on the necropsy itself. Mm -hmm. So this is a virus that's affecting the brain for the most part, a little Mm -hmm. bit the respiratory tract, but mostly the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately for me, uh, wild birds are different than domestic animals in that by the time I get a wild bird, it's often been sitting outside for a while. It's been frozen and thawed. So by the time I get it, the necropsy isn't as good as it normally would Mm -hmm. because of decomposition. Um, So I typically don't see much Um, talking with colleagues of mine. Some things they'll see is just congestion around the brain. So just a little bit of reddening of the vessels around the brain. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they can see a little bit of cloudiness in the meninges, but Mm. that's kind of hit or miss. Um, And then you can see cellular death or necrosis um, within different organs. um, And the pancreas is one of those. So there have been uh, a number of different organs. necropsies that I've done and colleagues of mine have done where you can see little areas of necrosis throughout the pancreas on necropsy exam. Yeah. But most of the time when I see it, it's going to be histologically. So under the microscope, yeah. I'll often be able to see the inflammation in the brain. Mm. Um, and it tends to be a typical viral encephalitis. So it tends to be the lymphocytes and plasma cells that are coming in and you're seeing those throughout the brain tissue. Um, and then you're seeing necrosis throughout other tissues. So mm-hmm. Um, we see in the pancreas, the heart, um, occasionally in the liver and spleen and other organs like that as well. Um, and at least for the mammals that I've seen, um, it's very, very similar to the birds. Yeah. Inflammation and necrosis in different um, right. organs and the brain is the major one that seems to be affected by it. Okay. So then what would be your differential diagnoses for 
seeing a lesion like that, then obviously avian influenza, but what are the... So it really depends on the species, and this is where we... One thing that I, I have to remind people all the time when it comes to wild birds is that we can't just put them all in one category. We have raptors, we have waterfowl, we have shorebirds, we have songbirds, and they're completely different species, similar to dogs, cats, mm-hmm. horses, cows. Yeah, um, They have different diets, they have uh, different ways of living. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the differential diagnosis would depend on the species that's out there. Right. Um, if we're talking about some of the more common species that get this, like um, geese and ducks, um, there's a Borna virus out there that can cause similar lesions in the brain. Mm. Um, if we're talking about raptors, uh, West Nile virus during the summer would mm. be a major one. Um, that one can affect raptors yeah. and same with crows and ravens where we mm. have seen this virus as well. Yeah. Um, so we're often testing for both viruses to determine which one could be involved in this. Yeah. Um, and then when it comes to mammals, rabies virus and canine distemper yeah. virus are two of the major ones that circulate. They can cause very similar lesions to what we're seeing. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. That is, I mean, that that's a lot of detective work as well, too. I mean, it it, it sounds fascinating and certainly a, a big departure from what I'm used to. You know, dealing yeah. with live animals and trying to, yes. you know, look at disease and preventive medicine, and then you on the other aspect of it, looking at you know what caused the animal to die or this flock or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, that is extremely interesting and, and very enlightening too. Definitely. Um. I do appreciate you spending time with us, Dr. Stevens. Um, I think we need to get you to come back at some point, um, maybe, you know, in the fall or early winter yep. to give us an update and to see where sure. things have gone and, you know, if there's any progress or changes that we need to be aware of, even before it hits the news media, I should say. Yes. Um, uh, but again, thank you so much for, for spending time with us. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, thank you to our listeners uh for for spending time with us as well too um you can find our you know podcasts on any of your favorite uh listening applications you can also follow us on instagram at vet sessions if you have uh, any questions for us or have any topics that you'd like us to cover you can certainly reach out to us by email uh vet sessions at hotmail.com thank you everyone